0: This is Small Talk with 101 ESPN's Michelle Smallman.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 137 of Small Talk. Your host Steve Cerruti and Michelle Smallman, are here with you. What's up to our podcast audience? And hello, as always, to our YouTube audience. And Cerruti with the backwards hat and the hoodie, fresh off a week in Burlington, <laughs> Vermont. How was it up there?
2: Uh, this is a Burlington sweatshirt, too. Oh. What's up? <laughs> I'm such a loser. Uh, no, but I love the sweatshirt. It's awesome. I was gonna Burling- say,
1: can you lean back a little? I need to see that more. It's so very awesome. Cool.
2: It's very super cool. cool. Is it Patagonia? That's kind of the vibe of it. Yeah. But for people who are listening, you're like, what the hell is going on? It's like a light hoodie. It's very nice. I don't know. I like to get things when I go somewhere. I got a hat too. We got some stuff. So I'm a big swag guy when I go places. I just like to remember stuff through clothes or hats or whatever. So yeah. I ended up picking up a sweatshirt. But Burlington, yeah, we were there. We, what, I think we were there for four or five days. Long weekend. I didn't really take any time off. I actually just worked from there because I could work remotely. Um, but we had a couple of days off. It's awesome it's awesome. I kind of described it. It's, it's a little bit like an earthier, crunchier, smaller New England version of Madison because it's a yeah. college town, right? And
1: well, yeah, you said crunchier. I was gonna say without they have good beer there, but without the binge drinking of beer and the cheese curds.
2: Yeah, they're more in touch with nature, and they're mm-hmm. you know it's it's very much a hiking community, and I'm sure there's a lot of natural deodorant going on there as well. <laughs> uh, but but I I had you a great. What? It was cold, so it didn't matter. Nobody smelled. It was fine.
1: Uh, With that natural deodorant, I'm going to guess a lot of patchouli.
2: Yes, yes. It's weird that I like those places. You know, you wouldn't think of me as liking these type of places, but I felt at home there. I loved it. Great food scene. It was cold, but the last couple of days it warmed up. We were right on Lake Champlain. And the the other thing that I thought was hilarious is that's where Rosilla went to college, right? That's Uh his stomping grounds. And it just seems like such a non racillo place, but he loves it too. And you guys obviously did the show there a few years ago. You know, it's I kind forgot of his homecoming. You
1: with us. I wasn't
2: there. Yeah. But so I was on Church Street. We were hanging out. and it's beautiful, it's amazing. So it's if anybody great. has a chance to get there, highly recommend Burlington. It's awesome.
1: A couple things from my time in Burlington. One, there was a place, I believe it's called the Vermont Flannel Company. I'll have to look it up to confirm. Softest flannel I've yep. ever purchased in my life.
2: Walk past it. Yep.
1: Highly, highly, highly recommend. Whatever the price tag is, it's worth it on a cold winter night. Number two, they have a lot of, at least for the restaurants that I went to, natural wines. Yep. I would highly oh, recommend- so
2: you were early on the natural wine thing. I just found out yes. about that a couple of, maybe a couple of months ago. Okay, uh, I have a buddy who's really into it and they yeah. are really into it up there. And they're it's awesome. It. Some of them are carbonated. They're really good. And I'm not a big wine guy, but I actually did really like it.
1: They're really good. However, I would recommend talking to your server about some of the wines that they're going to serve. Because for instance, when we first got there, Ray, Nechi, shout out to Ray and Elizabeth, our friends who were there on the show. We went out to dinner at this place and they had a natural wine selection. And I asked them to describe some of the wines. And one of them they described as having heavy barnyard notes. So I went ahead and passed on that one. because okay. That's kind of the last thing I want my wine to smell and taste like is a barnyard. So I would just recommend talking to your servers about what you might experience from a palate standpoint before you order those wines
2: i will say speaking of barns there was a lingering manure smell throughout <laughs> the entire town which for some reason didn't piss me off yeah. I, I felt like it was part of the ambiance right, of the place right. i don't know um but it was definitely there for sure yeah and uh yeah but but natural wine very very good there's a restaurant. I don't know if you went there when you were there, but it's amazing and it's one of the best restaurants in New England. It's called Hen of the Woods.
1: Of course we went. Of oh course. okay.
2: One of the best dinners I've ever had. I, had, I posted great. a picture of it on in my Instagram story and I had a guy respond and say, like, that's one of the best restaurants in New England, period. And he was, it was right. Awesome. It was awesome. So yeah, if you're we were there. It, hit it, up. it was
1: great. And then the third thing I would say is if you're there, obviously the scenery is great, but you have to go to Ben and Jerry's, right? If you're in Vermont, you need to go to Ben and we Jerry's. We actually
2: did not go to Ben and Jerry's.
1: Oh um, Steve. I know,
2: but I mean, I know, but I don't know. I, I Ice cream is my favorite dessert. I prefer it over cake. It's not like I'm an anti. I'm a very pro ice cream dude. Um right. But I can get energy hairs anywhere. It's fine. You know. I don't know. I know. It what is what it is. I know maybe amache. that was a miss on our part, but it was also cold outside, so we weren't really feeling the ice cream vibes. It was more like. I don't want to hear like
1: about it being cold. I'm wearing a puffer jacket because it's. Snowed. That's true. What's
2: happening right now?
1: It's it cold 70- in your apartment. It You're was broken. It, I was just outside. It was 70 degrees. And then the next day it snowed for six hours. Huge flakes, Steve, like this big of flakes coming down.
2: This is why I've always maintained spring is the fucking worst. It's the worst season. <laughs> the shorter it is, the better. I'd rather go straight from winter. And we kind of do now anyway, because there isn't really as much of a spring, a spring as it feels like there used to be. I would be okay if it snowed up until like the end of March and then. April hits and it was 60 and sunny, but it's not because we get this teaser. It's kind of like a blue ball situation. You get a 70 degree day, like you said, and then you get snow. It's like, fuck this shit. This is bullshit. I hate it. So that's why spring by far worst season. I don't even think that's a hot take. That's just the truth.
1: Well, no, winter is the worst because no, I love winter. I'd rather have winter than
2: spring. Listen, Michelle, if it's going to be cold, (laughs) I don't want to be teased one. And if it's going to be cold, I'd rather it be snowing than raining. Nothing is worse than a cold rain snow. All you want. I don't care. Um, I wish winter was shorter, but no, no, no. Spring, by far the worst season, summer and fall. I don't even know which one I'd put higher. I love falls. You know, I love fall. What's up? I
1: know, I know. By the way, you need to go to Burlington in the fall like I did because the I leaves, know. outstanding. They do this thing, leaf peeping. I think we've talked about that on the pod before, Sounds but weird, the but... leaves are majestic. You know, we didn't talk about leaf peeping. People go to Vermont. To
2: oh yeah. People do that in New England, period. All over yeah, England. New England. Yeah, that's but, it. But
1: Vermont, especially in the fall, sensational. Yeah, I have something for you. I was going to say, while you were away, yeah, I know where we're going. there was major drama in the <laughs> soccer <Super> Bowl. world. <laughs> it's a really Super Bowl. I've been dying to talk to you, but I didn't want to bug you while you and Maddie and the dogs were away on your trip. I was like, you know what? Let Steve live. Let him live. I saw a lot of craft beer action happening. I was living I good. Lo- I saw a lot of lake action happening, so I didn't want to bother you, but I'm dying to get your thoughts on the Super League that wasn't.
2: Okay. What questions do you have? Because how much do I need to explain this for you? Because I think, or everyone, the audience in general, because I do have an odd amount of knowledge on it. And I do have a couple of comparisons, but in like 30 seconds, what do you think you know about the Super League?
1: Okay, here's what I think I know based on the headlines and very few paragraphs I read about it, that some of the top leagues in European soccer decided to form together to join a Super League essentially out of greed. They would not have to face relegation, correct? And mm-hmm. all of this had to do with the financial ramifications. The fans and media went bananas because they love the construct of the e- EPL and or UEFA and essentially said to these people, why are you trying to ruin a good thing? We will not stand for it. And in a rare, rare turn of events, greed took a big L and the fans took the W.
2: Close. A couple things I'll correct you on. One, yeah, okay. The leagues themselves didn't get together. It was select teams in some that's of the top I mean. leagues. Yeah, so I should
1: have said a clubs. Not it was leagues.
2: it was six teams in England. There's 20 teams in the Premier League. The top six teams, which are called the Big Six, quote unquote, um, they were out. That's Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool, Tottenham, Man City, Man United. Did I? I yeah. think that's sick. Uh, yeah. So you're Leicester out. My Everton out. We don't get a ticket. We don't get to see the table. That's it. Um, okay. Inter Milan. AC Milan, Juventus, Italy. So Roma, out. Bullshit. What are we doing? Um, and then Real Madrid in Spain, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid. Those are the 12 teams. And what happened was the German teams, which is Bayern Munich, who, by the way, are the reigning champions league champions they are the best team in the world even though they got knocked out of the champions league this year but they're the best team in the world they're amazing said we're not doing this this is bullshit we don't want anti-competition which is awesome from them because that's just a really cool gesture and really the entire german league deserves credit for just saying no this is bullshit we don't want to do this um and then psg who is basically owned by the country of qatar they're kind of in bed with uefa and they all. So they so they yeah that's the reason the world cup is one of the reasons the world cup is in qatar in what twenty twenty two? Yeah, so right. um they are not in it either. So those are two big clubs and not be in it. It would be weird if they weren't in it. Mm-hmm. Those are contenders. Not only I mean, byron won it, and PSG are one of the favorites to win it this year as well. Go ahead.
1: Can I ask you? So would that be like if the Steelers and the Patriots weren't in an NFL Super League? Is that a fair comp?
2: Kind of. Yeah, yeah. It would be like if the NBA made a Super League with just twelve of the teams, and the Warriors weren't in it.
1: Okay, we like, you know back in the can't day have, when they
2: were nasty because it. that doesn't make any sense. So. Okay. The whole thing was bullshit and then another thing i would correct you on is it's not that people like uefa sucks first off fifa sucks but this is a classic the enemy of your enemy is your friend right mm-hmm. and you unite together to fight a greater evil which was this stupid super league and to explain to people why this is bad i'll explain the champions league first if you don't know so in england germany italy france spain a few other countries and leagues across europe you qualify for this champions tournament, which is the best of the best teams from every single league. They qualify for this tournament by finishing at the top in the top few spaces of their whatever competition in their home country. They play in the champions league and they play midweek games and they're at night and they're just this huge spectacle. It's the greatest thing in the world, maybe other than the world cup from a sporting perspective. The same clubs are typically in it every year. You know, it's mostly the same teams, the same teams when it's, it's the biggest teams. It's not like there are a lot of underdog stories going on in, in champions league, but you know, there have been clubs like Leicester City who made the Champions League because they won the Premier League a few years ago, right? Um, Atalanta, a team in Italy who are traditionally not a big team, have made waves recently because they've been really good. They're one of the best. They're one of the best teams just to, to watch, period, in all of the world. They would not be invited to this tournament. They would not get in. Um, so these twelve teams just wanted to say, hey, we don't want to compete in our leagues anymore because, you know, in England there's only four spots for six of the big teams, right? And you know, in Italy, you know, there's there's more than three teams that are really good. And they were only getting three spots in the Super League. So they basically were just like, hey, instead of having to qualify for this league, why don't we just make our own league where we're in it every single year? And then we can just keep all of the money and not have to deal with UEFA. And I've heard a lot of, I don't want to call them dumb. They're just ignorant American sports fans who go, oh, what's wrong with the best teams playing each other? That's awesome. That's stupid. It's like they already do play each other. And it also would ruin the... it would would really ruin the local country leagues. Like the EPL would be ruined because these bigger clubs would not care about the EPL season because they'd have bigger fish to fry in a Super League. And even if they had a shitty year, like Arsenal is in this freaking Super League. They're barely even a top half team in the Premier League right now. Yeah, screw Arsenal. That's your boy Stan Kroenke, which is another sort of layer to this thing is that there are a lot of American owners and I don't want to say it's their fault, but for example, Arsenal owned by Stan Kroenke. Everybody knows how great of a dude he is. Liverpool, owned by Fenway Sports Group, John Henry, the Red Sox. They're the ones that traded away Mookie Betts to the freaking Dodgers and gave them a World Series title. So they're not, you know, they're not exactly loved by their fans either. Uh, who else? There's a couple other American uh, owners. Oh, the AC Milan's owned by American owners. There's some owned by China. There's some owned by, what is it, Saudi Arabia's owned, uh, the owners of Manchester City. The Glazer family owns Manchester United, right? They own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They own a, they It's all these American teams that kind of wanted to sort of Americanize the sport And it just wasn't necessary. I think the biggest, I'll let you ask a question after this, but let me just finish with this. I think the best uh, comparison for this entire thing was, and I heard this from Roger Sherman on Twitter, and it's great. It'd be like if the college football playoff, if Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame, a couple of the big clubs just said, hey, screw the college football playoff. We're just going to play in our tournament every single year and nobody else can get in. right? And we don't have to play in our conferences. Even if we go like seven and five on the year, we're still going to be in this playoff tournament and the regular season doesn't matter whatsoever. It's completely anti-competition. It makes no sense. It'd be like if every single year, instead of the 64-team NCAA basketball tournament, there were just 12 teams with Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, all the big, all the blue bloods. And none of the other small schools got to take part. So that's why it's bullshit. And luckily, fans protested, media members protested. Everybody lost their freaking minds. And I think the PR backlash was probably too much. And these clubs just said, hey, we're sorry. Two days in, they were like, hey, my bad. And they, they, all, they all except for, I think, two clubs backed out. All right. I know that was a lot of information I threw at you very quickly. I tried to be as concise as possible, but I'm sure it's still very confusing. Fire your questions away. I'm sure you have a lot.
1: Thank you for that background information. Very helpful. Question number one, the fans are obviously very pissed about this. The Mm -hmm. teams have backed out. I saw Arsenal, even though we hate them, apologize, which a lot of other clubs did not, but how are these clubs going to be able to bounce back with the fans?
2: Uh, It's going to be difficult. Now, Arsenal apologized. Liverpool, John Henry, I mean, he had this just awful video where he was like, oh, we got it wrong. We're sorry. I'd rather you not apologize because I know you don't mean it. You don't care. You know, all of a sudden in two days, you know, you guys, you wanted the money. That's fine. I don't blame you for it. Don't blame me for being pissed off about it. And don't act like you're all of a sudden sorry because this thing blew up in your face. The question is, do these teams get punished, right? And it's still kind of being figured out. It happens so fast that it's almost like, they dip their toes in the water and like, oh shit, we cannot be in here. So I struggle a little bit with whether or not they should actually be punished. And when we talk about punishments, we talk about fines. We talk about mm-hmm. banning them from the Champions League or the Europa League. There's been talk whether or not these teams should be relegated from their leagues, which, which will never, ever, that. ever happen. I read but, that though, which I mean, would be
1: unbelievable. If they wanted to be so greedy and form a Super League and then they got relegated, that would be the ultimate kiss of karma.
2: Yeah, because all this is about money, right? These clubs... Yes, they are the driving force behind pretty much the revenue for a lot of the other teams, right? I'm sure the big six in England make almost as much as the rest of the teams combined, right? Revenue for the league. And yeah, they could probably stand to make more money, but the spirit of competition and them being able to compete with these other teams is what makes sports great. You know, I think like eight of the teams who are in the super league, either drew or lost over the weekend. It's not like they're just running riot. And then yes, A lot of these teams win their leagues every year at the top of the leagues every year. No one's questioning that. That doesn't mean you don't give the small guy an opportunity. And here's the other thing with the financial stuff is if you find these teams, these teams are complaining that, oh, like, you know, COVID screwed us up and now it set us back because we weren't, we didn't have the same revenues as we had, which is somewhat true. But it's also true that a lot of these clubs are awful. They're terribly run. Barcelona is the worst run club in the world. They spend a ridiculous amount of money on players that they shouldn't be buying just because they kind of think they have to buy star players Real Madrid have not been very good recently you know Manchester City has unlimited money so you never know Arsenal has been bad spending money Mm -hmm. Tottenham just fired their manager they're a disaster I saw that Arsenal haven't even finished in a Champions League place in five years and they're going to get an automatic freaking bid into this into the Super League AC Milan haven't finished in a Champions League spot in Italy in almost a decade. Yeah, they won the competition like 10 years ago, but they've been terrible ever since. And they're just trying to protect themselves when they make bad decisions that they have a safety net, which is that they always keep getting that Champions League money. Because when you make the Champions League, you get a shit ton of money. There's a reason like Leicester making the Champions League was a big deal because they got a shit ton of money. And these clubs just want to ensure that they never miss out on those checks And so if you find them, they're going to say, oh, we're already in a bad financial state. So the whole punishment thing, I don't think they're going to be punished. I mean, they'll get a slap on the wrist, maybe, maybe a small fine, but people were throwing relegation out there, uh, which was kind of interesting as well.
1: Okay. So you answered a bunch of my questions and that one answer, which was great, because I was going to ask about punishment. I Mm -hmm. was going to ask about the overall motive for this. You mentioned the fans. I don't know if you have the answer to this, but what did the other organizations who weren't involved in the Super League, how did they respond to this? Because I would imagine if I'm looking at a team like Arsenal, who hasn't been good in a long time, and they're thinking we should just get an automatic bid, and I'm a team like Leicester City, who's been far more competitive (laughs) in recent years, that would certainly piss me off.
2: They were all pissed. All pissed. Now, here's where I struggle, because reportedly, not all the teams that were in the Super League were actually super pumped about it they were just kind of like if we don't join we're gonna get left behind and miss mm. out on all this money
1: classic now, peer pressure like,
2: yeah so the rumor is or you know i don't know it's a rumor it might even be fact i don't know i'm not a reporter but this is what i've read is that juventus real madrid manchester united and liverpool were the big drivers behind this and chelsea and manchester city weren't really that into it but mm-hmm. they were just like, well, we can't say no, because then what are we going to do? We're not going to be in this tournament and make all this money. You're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And it's really sure. hard to say, I'm going to be a good person and not do this, which is what For Bayern sure. and a lot of the German teams did. So they deserve credit.
1: Shout Arsenal
2: Arsenal and Tottenham, they're the kid in dodgeball that's just pumped to be picked. They were like, whoa, you guys want us to be a part of this tournament? That's amazing. We're in. Where do we sign? Like, I will sign anything to be in this tournament. You're right. They're just, they haven't been as good recently. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so all the other teams were very pissed off, but- It's easy to be pissed off. This is where I'm like, all right, you got to take it with a grain of salt. It's easy to be pissed off when you're not chosen, you know? Would they have had the same energy if they were one of the teams picked? Would they have actually denied it? Some of them maybe, but some of them probably would have said yes too. It's just a matter of circumstance. So all the clubs came out and were like, "This is embarrassing," and rightfully so. They all just trashed it, and especially for some smaller clubs. I mean, if you're looking in the Premier League, Leicester would probably be fine, Everton would probably be fine, but if you get to the bottom of the Premier League and then you start talking about even the championship division, which is the second tier and and then the third tier of English football, those clubs depend on a lot of the revenue that some of the bigger clubs um, give them, right? They probably wouldn't be able to exist without the pyramid system in English soccer, English football. Same thing with Italy, same thing with all the other countries. So by these clubs breaking away, they were really going to impact the bottom line of even some of the smaller clubs, which the cool thing about English and Italian and German and Spanish teams is that they're really part of the community. It's not really like pro sports in America where, you know, there are these big conglomerates, like the Yankee. These clubs were started by poor workers who just like playing the sport and they just mm-hmm. organized and they got it together. And it's very rare in America for like a stadium to be in a neighborhood. A lot of these stadiums in these European uh, cities, and some of them are towns, like they're not even cities. Some of the teams in the premier league aren't really cities, you know, Wolverhampton is not a big place. I mean, Brighton, they're they're cities, but they're not huge. You know, Bournemouth is like a small town Um, Mm -hmm. and their stadiums are in the community. They are part of the community. So you're really talking about like ripping the hearts out of these fans and and the bottom line of these smaller clubs. So uh, they were very pissed off and they were all wrote in and said how angry they were. But if they were invited to this thing, would they have said yes? It's hard to tell. I would probably say yes, but we'll never know.
1: Interesting. Okay, two more for you. Number one, clearly, I see Cronky out trending huh. worldwide, and that piques my <laughs> attention boy. because I know what a terrible person he is, what a terrible owner he is. And I clicked on a headline today that said, essentially, a lot of these clubs are feeling the backlash and that the fans have gotten their way. Will pushing Sam Kroenke out be next? This was um, in a paper in England. Yep. Will any of these owners, whether it's Stan Kroenke or any of the other owners, face any sort of ramifications from that point to where they're going to be forced to make a move or potentially put someone else as the face of this because they're catching so much heat?
2: I don't think they'll ever be forced to sell. There have been articles written about, and they didn't name names, but owners saying that they would look to sell their clubs after this, which would probably be a good thing for the sport. I mean, the problem too is that, Especially in England, they've let a lot of people from outside of the country come in, not only from America, but as I said, you know, Qatar, um, Saudi Arabia, and it's a lot of money. It's a lot more money than these clubs have ever had. And they don't really understand the history. And like, uh, who am I? Some kid from Connecticut, from the States, who's talking about the history of England? I appreciate it. I'm not trying to change it it is what it is the, the reason I like it is because it's different and cool and it's a local vibe even though these clubs are big worldwide brands they mm-hmm. still are from a place you know so a lot of these owners are, are I think they're pretty tone deaf and they don't understand how it really works within the system the greater system of English soccer or Italian soccer or whatever so I don't think they'll ever be forced to sell but I think they would probably be open to it now Kroenke I have no idea I mean I know the fans would love it because they've hated Stan Kroenke ever since he got there Um, they just don't think he spends enough money. They don't Mm -hmm. think he's never there. I mean, I think his son runs the club really too. Was it Josh? I think is the guy's name. I don't even remember. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if he'll sell the glazers who are the owners of Manchester United. They have said that they're not going to sell, but there was rumor that they might. And then their chairman, their CEO, this guy, uh, Woodward United fans hate anyway, apparently he's going to be out at the end of the year because of this. Mm -hmm. So I think you could see some of these clubs get sold because the owners just say, well, I don't want to sign up for this anymore because I'm just getting done with bad press. But I kind of doubt it because they're probably rolling in the money anyway. And some of these guys are stubborn too. And they're going to be like, well, screw you. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to own this club. And I don't really care what you think. So right. uh, maybe one or two, but I don't think very many. And I don't think Arsenal will sell. I think Kroenke too stubborn.
1: Uh, zero Fs given by him, by the way, about fans hating him. I can promise you that.
2: <laughs> they buy these clubs as investments, right? And I get that sports is a business, but you have to respect the tradition. You have to respect what this club is about. And a lot of these guys don't do that. They come in, they want to change everything and modernize everything and make everything the way they want it to optimize, you know, the profit and the bottom line. And like Arsenal, for example, they laid off a ton of their staff during COVID, right? They laid off a ton of their staff. They fired their mascot, Gunnar Soros, which is like this giant dinosaur who what? had been their mascot forever. They fired Gunner Soros. This is how shitty this... You know this. This is how shitty Stan Kroenke is. This is how shitty Arsenal is. I'm aware.
1: But like, you're going to fire the mascot. You couldn't have taken that money and allocated it to keep the mascot around.
2: No. So it's complete and utter bullshit. And they got crushed for it. And it just seemed unnecessary. It's all about greed. It's like somebody who comes and buys a company and just guts it and tries to maximize the profits while still being kind of relevant. That's what they kind of try to do. And- it sucks because, you know, the fans are sitting here going, well, we're paying higher ticket prices than we ever have before. Merchandise is through the roof. One of the things that the Real Madrid owner was saying was like, oh, you know, people between the ages of 18 or 16 and 24 aren't as into soccer anymore. And one of the reasons is because it's too it's so fucking expensive to be a fan. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to follow these leagues, to go to games. It's cost more than ever. And he was talking about making the games shorter than 90 minutes because for people's attention spans, soccer is the shortest sport there is. Yeah. Are you kidding? If baseball
1: baseball games were 90 minutes, I'd be the happiest girl We're talking four hours sometimes.
2: These guys, long story short, these guys are so out of touch. And it's all, again, it's all about greed. It's all about money. And they they don't really care about the history and the traditions of each club.
1: Okay. Final question. You mentioned these guys are out of touch. They've clearly pissed everyone off. Even Mm -hmm. though the Super League isn't happening, fans are furious. Mm -hmm. Is this decision and this move to even attempt a super league enough to turn fans off from soccer permanently. Some fans.
2: No, I think if the super league had happened, a lot of people would have watched it, but I do think there would still have been a a faction and I don't know how big it would be, but I think there'd be a a decent sized chunk of people who would say I'm out. I don't want to take part in this. And then you'd have the weird two competition thing too, because if Bayern and PSG and some of those other clubs weren't in the super league, those are some of the best teams in the world. So you could have Bayern winning the champions league and then Real Madrid winning the, the Super League. And you're like, well, who's the best team in the world? We don't even know. Mm-hmm. So it, it would have created kind of a clusterfuck competitively to figure out who the best team in the world every year is. But I don't think people will leave now that they've sort of walked it back. I think if they had stayed, it probably would have made a shit ton of money because these are huge clubs. And they have huge fans bases and people want to watch the best teams play. I get that. But they would have alienated some of the smaller teams. Um, you know, for me as an Everton fan, if I was just an Everton fan and didn't you know follow the sport as a whole, I'd be like, well, I'm not watching this bullshit. My team's on it. So I don't think they'll lose fans because of how it went down. And because the cool thing that happened throughout all this is not only was it the fans that were pissed off, not only was it former players that were pissed off, not only was it the media that was pissed off, the players themselves on the current clubs, many of them came out and were like, we don't want this. First off, none of them were even involved in this decision-making. It was the the highest of the high, like two to three people at the top of every single major club. They were the only ones that were really privy to any of this information. So the players, when they found out, just found out like all of us, there was a report from somebody who I was reading saying that he had, it was a reporter. He was saying, I had players texting me, asking me what the hell was going on because they had no idea. Big name oh, players.
1: Huge and, mistake.
2: Yeah. So I don't think they'll lose popularity or fans because the players themselves were on their side in this, you know, it was really just the greedy sort of owner CEO types that wanted all this. And I think it's easy to sort of say, all right, you know, let's go back to normal. We can still hate the higher ups and all these executives, but the core of the game, the managers, the players, the former players, the media, all those people, they were not a part of this. So um, I think you can get out, kind of get off scotch free. The interesting part was that when this whole thing was going down, the super league was potentially proposed. FIFA was threatening saying anyone who plays for any of those teams, you're not eligible to play in the world cup, which would have been next summer. And these players would have been like, well, fuck that. The world cup is <laughs> yeah. Club competitions make a lot of money and it's great. And they're yearly, but mm-hmm. the world cup is the biggest sporting event in the world period. Right. So for you to, play for
1: your country, right?
2: For you to potentially deny these players playing for their home country. I mean, that would have been a big fucking deal and it would have been a problem. So no, I think it'll be fun.
1: Okay. Well, this was so informative. Thank you. Sarudi, not only co-host of the pod, but our resident soccer insider or a football insider.
2: Yeah. Small talk. You're home for soccer.
1: We've got MLS coming to St. Louis, so we're going to get on the MLS bandwagon and Saruti's got your European soccer ready to go all the time. We didn't even mention this, Steve. We have a guest this week. Uh, We talked about it at the end of the pod last week, but we're going to talk to Jason Fitz of ESPN and he's going to join us here in a second. Well, as Cerruti and I mentioned, we are so thrilled to welcome in our guest Small Talk this week. It's Jason Fitz. You, of course, hear him on ESPN Radio from 7 to 9 Eastern, Monday through Friday, and you see him on ESPN socials, on all sorts of various ESPN platforms. Jason, we know you're super busy. You actually just wrapped your radio show, so thank you for giving us some of your time. Uh,
0: first of all, uh, thank you for having me. And second, You guys are awesome. And like, I just have to say this, because I think one of the things I didn't know coming out of the music business and into sports was like how it would be received, how people would receive me, how much benefit of the doubt. Like I knew the fans would hate me. That's just the way it goes. Like they hate everything new. (laughs) Yeah. But the the great thing about ESPN and with you guys particularly is that y'all were so open and like welcoming. And I wasn't used to that. Like the music business is much more, like dog eat dog, frankly, than the sports broadcasting businesses, and like I realized that quickly, largely because you guys. So I'd come on with you anytime you ever want. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
1: That's nice. Thank you.
0: It's funny.
2: I remember. I don't know if you remember this, Michelle, but Fitz, you did some ESPN stuff. It was you. Mm-hmm. It was a Golick Junior. Yeah. You were doing a college football show, and I remember we'd always have the TVs on, and I didn't know who you were at the time. I'm like this, there's this guy's tatted up. You and goal Junior tatted up. It was awesome. And, you know, I was like, who is this guy? People thought, oh, Jason Fitz. Here's his background. He you know, was obviously a music guy in Nashville, played the fiddle in different bands. I'm like, what? what's he doing talking college football? Like, what's going on? I was so fascinated by you being able to make the jump from one, as you said, very competitive field to sort of another competitive field in the sports media industry. Um, and doing that sort of, you know, as a, as a young guy and as a successful guy, I had always just sort of admired you for doing that because not a lot of people are willing to take a risk like that. So from the jump, I just respected your work ethic because I know it probably wasn't easy to do that at first. But were you
0: nervous when that happened? How did that go down? Because I don't know if a lot of people necessarily know that. So, you know, the funny thing is I I had podcasts like our busiest. I was When I was with the band Perry, our busiest year, I was gone 300 days. And I remember coming home to my wife and saying like, hey, I'm good at this. And I'm thankful to do this. I played the violin since I was four. Like, this is all I've ever done my whole life. I just don't love it. And she said, okay, if I asked 100 of your friends what you really love, what would the answer be? And I said, sports. So she was like, all right, find a way to talk about sports. And I felt so dumb that I took all of like my string recording equipment and I sat in my car and I did a podcast because I didn't even really know how to do a podcast. I was just like, all right, I know how to edit vocals and strings, so I should be able to figure this out. And like I, I put a podcast up on Facebook for my friends and it was the most exhilarating rush for me that like it was unreal just to talk into a mic for 10 minutes. So I ripped it apart. And I, I figured out like what I wanted to build was a show where I could talk to music guys about sports and sports guys about music. But really what I wanted to do was make like great relationships. And if that's all that ever came from it, at least, you know, it was my way to try and make friends with the Adam Schefters of the world. And so like that's, that was my whole initial approach, but then it just became my beast. And like, you know, everywhere we were, I, I put up an episode every week. And so it didn't matter. I remember sitting in a coffee shop in Norway, yelling into a microphone about the Packers. And like, it, it just, it was life. But the funny thing is when I got the call for that college football show on ESPNU, and it was me and Elika Sadegi and Michael junior didn't know anybody. I got the call and they said, look, you know, can you be in Charlotte tomorrow to meet with some people? We're interested. So I, it was the first day off I'd had in like eight months. I flew to Charlotte. I had sushi with the guy and I'm like, I don't know if he liked me or not. The next day they offer me this show. But the crazy thing about contracts in the music or in the sports business world for anyone that doesn't know is when you start out, you start on what they call a usage deal. So it was a they offered me a deal where they could fire me after one show. And that that was just the way it was going to be. And so I went to the band and I said, can I have Mondays off and, you know, for this stretch for this show? And we weren't touring. So it was like, yeah, no worries. But at the very last second, there was a show that was on the books. And they just weren't comfortable letting me miss it. So I sat down with my wife and I was like, What do we do? And she's like, Yeah, you get offered a TV show on the ESPN, you you quit. So I quit the band with no idea how like I, I quit the band and could have, you know, could have made a thousand bucks total in my life. You know, I like no idea how we were gonna keep the the lights on. Like, but I was like, All right, you jump, right? Like, that's the risk you take. And the funny thing is. We didn't have a rehearsal. We didn't do any like sort of run throughs. I met Mike and Elika a few hours before we were live and, and five minutes before we went live on TV, our producer handed me a, a rundown, as I now know, handed me the rundown. He said, here's your rundown. And I was like, cool. What's a rundown? And he's like, <laughs> oh, my God. Right. And like, but at some point, like entertainment's entertainment. And, you know, being able to keep energy and being able to keep focus and do the job at hand is of my it was part of my life and you know in the music business you wear these little in-ear monitors and people communicate the whole show so i'm used to talking to and being talked to uh, other other people during a show while i'm playing like i'm playing a fiddle solo i'll step on a mic and be like hey we're gonna skip the next song we're gonna go over there and nod if you got me so if you ever see anybody on stage nodding they're communicating so i was like okay this isn't that different i just have to stay focused on what Mike's saying. And I remember we were like three episodes in and the producer was still like in my ear constantly. He's like, we're going to go to A25 next, like talking the language. And finally he was like, react to Mike, react to Mike. And we went to break and I was like, hey, bud, can't react to Mike if you're talking to me the whole time. So like there was this weird progression of learning, but I was, I was scared out of my mind. I mean, I'd be lying otherwise. And, you know, uh, that, was, that was August 26th, I think, of 2016 was my last show with the band pair. It was the Alaska State Fair It was on a Saturday. And on Monday I did my first TV show. And, you know, before you know it, I was on ESPN radio and, and like life changed. It it was, it was really surreal to see that process, but I do tell people all the time I'm new to sports or was new to to sports particularly at the time, but i have been in the entertainment business since I was eight, you know? So like that, that part of it's pretty old hat to me, you know?
1: What was the band's reaction when you told them I'm walking away and I'm going to do it for something. That's not a sure thing
0: um i think everybody was stunned you know and the funny thing is there were a lot of guys like we were on tour for a long time with different uh, different acts that were huge and we spent a, a good year on a rascal flats tour and the rascal flats guys used to make fun of me every week because i would like i'd be standing side stage before sound check, like talking into a microphone plugged into the side of a laptop i'm like sorry doing my open hold on you know and they used to mock me so much like just because it, it looked dumb right and what, what do I know about sports? Why is anyone going to hire me? And obviously I put a lot of work into it, but the funny thing is uh, when, when flats was up in Connecticut, I was backstage hanging out with some of the guys and some of the crew guys were like, I, I, we owe you an apology. Cause you're on TV a lot now. And I'm like, dude, you know, you just, you put in the work, but yeah, I think everybody was really stunned to see me walk away. And I, you know, for the band, I was playing the fiddle, but I, I played six instruments. I was the music director. I built the tracks. I ran the tracks. Like I ran that show. So you know, it was a, it was a heck of an adjustment for them, you know, not, not because I'm some God, but because I was doing a lot of different jobs and like, anytime you have to replace that much at once, I think it's a little, it's a little stunning. So, you know, I, it's still, still a little surreal when I look back on it, I tell everybody bet recklessly on yourself, but that's also easy to do when I don't like, we never had kids. Like we didn't, to me, I, I grew up, I moved around a lot as a kid. So like, to me, roots don't really exist. So I'm like, all right, Let's go. I got to move to Connecticut. Let's go.
2: Well, what we want to get to sort of your background in being a musical savant, really, the Juilliard stuff. And I've always heard the name Juilliard, but I don't think I know fully exactly what the deal is. One thing that you just said, when you're on the road, do any of these guys like sports or girls like sports? Did you have anyone to talk about sports with? Or are you just kind of in your own head? Rascal Flats, were they sports fans, the band Perry, any of these people? Or were you just kind of like on an island in this musical thing? And the other part of that, that I think is interesting is we always talk about athletes that you know, oh, this guy doesn't love to play the sport, or he's really good. right? he's talented. It happens a lot with centers in the NBA, right? They're just seven feet tall. It's like here's a basketball, play basketball. And they don't love basketball. For you to acknowledge that, hey, I'm really good at playing this instrument, or I'm really good musically, but I don't love it. That has to be a tough thing to grasp. That's a two part question, but feel free to, to
0: answer whichever one you want. Not a lot of guys or girls in the band Perry were sports fans at all, but they all respected the fact that I was. So like. You know, Sundays there was never a fight to get the TV on football. Right, Saturdays never a fight. A lot of country acts are big college football fans, so you find people on tour. Uh, one of my best friends uh, for years, uh, unfortunately, has passed. Was a was our merch guy, and he had the checkerboard tattoo on his leg of the Vols, the Tennessee Vols end zone and so every every saturday when he would wake up he'd just start screaming go balls and so still to this day <laughs> in his memory on saturday mornings i scream, i don't really care if the balls win i just scream, go balls just for him so i think you know you find guys on tour that you have that relationship with um but you know as far what was the other part of it yeah, what was the two part yeah sorry about about oh, acknowledging, like loving, acknowledging not loving, loving what it, you're yeah. great at like so I used to text my wife before every show time to make the donuts and after every show I'd text her money earned. And to me, it was never not, that, not that it was about money, but it was about, for me, it was about precision. My, my job was to make sure that a show was perfect. And frankly, I never really cared if the crowd liked it uh, because the way I was raised, it didn't audience approval. Isn't what you do it for. You do it to be the best at what you do that particular night. So That was so ingrained in me that I looked at every show like a like a game plan. Like, how do I come in and execute this this show perfectly, which means everything that Kimberly Perry needs, she's going to get because she's got to be a performer. I've got to be an executionist. Right. And so like that, that that was always my my mindset. And in fact, you know, later in our touring time when they would do like intros for all of us and they asked like, you know, what we wanted for each of us. Uh, like Kimberly came up to me one day and she's like, all right, so we're going to do intros in this section and we'll throw you like, you go out to the edge of the stage and what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. I'll just like do the running man or something. And she's like, you can't dance. And I'm like, that's the point. I don't really care about acknowledgement. So like, I'm just going to go out there be an idiot and then I'll go back and keep doing my job. And that's sort of how I looked at it. And, and, and you know, again, not, not to not be thankful, but if you stand up in front of 75,000 people and you play a solo and you don't get an adrenaline rush, then you got to admit that like, all right, this just isn't what feeds me. And the the dumb thing about it, you know, is that now like I've done a lot of radio shows and I've done a lot of digital shows and a lot of TV. I still get butterflies every time I'm about to start a show where I've got like this energy and it's like, hell yeah, this is what I'm meant to do. And so, you know, I just didn't have that with music, but in fairness, I started playing the violin when I was four. By the time I was eight, I practiced eight hours a day. I got into Juilliard and, and played Carnegie hall when I was 10, like, I, I had put in, they asked me at ESPN when I first interviewed with anybody, they were like, what if you burn out? And I was like, all right, well, I gave music like roughly 30 years. So if I give you roughly 30 years here, you're gonna be kicking me out the door, right. you know? Yep. So I think burnout is just, it's a natural evolution when you've worked so hard.
1: That's so interesting that you bring up burnout because Sports Illustrated. I don't know if you read this, the cover story for Sports Illustrated this week is about mental health issues in baseball. And a lot of players are coming out now and they're talking about the pressures of performing at a high level, but also how the burnout factor is real and it's contributing to mental health issues. And I wonder if it's because a lot of these people, just like you, have something that they're highly and uniquely talented at, and the evolution of someone that's a prodigy or someone that's really good at something is to basically focus your entire life on it from the time that you're a kid into your adolescence and then into your adulthood. And you miss a lot of things along the way when you're really, really good at something and you're pouring all of your energy into something that eventually burnout is just going to happen. And I'm just curious, at what point did you realize I'm really good at this, but I don't want to do it anymore?
0: No, gosh high school. I mean, that, that, that early, it was like, for me, it wasn't that I didn't necessarily want to do it anymore. It was that I knew I didn't love it, but I knew it was a gift that I'd been given. And I knew that like, I put all of this time into it. And also I'm such a pleaser. Like my parents put so much time, money, like I didn't come from anything. So for me to get these lessons was a, was a huge strain on the family. And so like, you do look around at some point and say, okay, a lot of people have made a lot of sacrifice. Now I have an obligation, you know, and that, again, that was part of, like the good and the bad of being a classical musician, part of how I was raised, like you constantly, you're not competing against anyone else, you're competing against yourself, but you're also like, you've got to be driven every day to be absolutely perfect. And, you know, at the same time, you've got this expectation of perfection on everything that you do and the resources and time that it takes, like now you've made a commitment. And when I was little, if my mom's rule was ever, if I wanted to play or if I wanted to quit, I could quit, but I had to put in a six month notice and for six months i had to work my ass off i had to play absolutely as hard every single day for six months as i did uh, as i ever have and if at the end of six months i still wanted to quit i could walk away well in that six month trajectory you'll have a, a competition you win or you'll have a big performance with an orchestra behind you and you're like oh this is the best and it's like you still want to quit no so like you just like you find that cycle um, but i think what happens to your point with the baseball guys and I know a few major league players and former players that talk about the mental grind of the season anyway. Like, it's a weird beast to realize that everybody that watches you expects you to be perfect every single time you do everything you do. And I realize nobody gives a damn about rich athletes make, you know, wanting sympathy. But I had a former baseball player tell me one time, he said, imagine if you went out in front of the largest crowd you've ever played in front of and you played your solo and afterwards in front of that home crowd, people booed because they just didn't think it was good enough. And like that, that hit me, you know, because we do that to athletes all the time. And then we wonder, and then we question their mental health if they want to talk about any of these issues. We question their, their fortitude if they want to talk about anything. And it's one of the most asinine things I think that sports fans do. Like I tell people all the time, imagine, I don't care if you make widgets or spreadsheets. Imagine if somebody came up sat by your desk berated you the entire time that you did it told you that you sucked at your job told you that you sucked at life and told you you didn't deserve to live because you weren't great that day because that's what athletes deal with every single day maybe people don't care because the perception is they're playing a game and we all wish we could do that but man they're still human beings i think that's what we're learning that that piece does a great job of, of telling it but we're learning that across sports like these are human beings that happen to be gifted athletes
1: Exactly. And the vulnerability that I think a lot of athletes are showing now is really welcomed, at least in my opinion, because you're right, they are human beings. And no matter how much you Are good at your craft and you are on a highly pressurized situation. I just think it's never going to be naturalized for you to be in front of that many people, to have to have your results judged in the moment you mentioned booing. Then you have to go speak in front of maybe 50 to 100 people and answer questions about your performance. And then you have to open your phone and have thousands of people you don't know tell you you suck. So I I don't know how they do it, but I want to circle back to you being young and realizing that you're really good at this. And as Saruti mentioned, you went to juilliard which is so prestigious it is so rare that people get accepted to juilliard people dream about it their entire lives and only the best of the best go there but i'm curious about what your experience from a social level was at juilliard what's it like when you get there is everyone hyper competitive and they don't socialize and it's not very fun or do people hang out is there any sort of party scene at juilliard
0: Uh, No, not that I like. So the track is really different for everybody. Right. Like, and I will say that I think, you know, theater kids have a different experience than classical kids have a different experience than dance kids. And then even within those, there's subsets. Like for me, because uh, like, and I say this uh, for anyone that doesn't know, I try, like, I say this with humility. I don't, you know, I don't talk about this stuff often because I don't want people to think that I'm full of myself and and all this to say that. When I was little, I was basically fast tracked into. There was a, a world renowned violin teacher named Dorothy Delay, and she was at the time every you know every big name at some point has taken lessons from her. And when she identified that she thought I was talented at ten, that basically changed what my expectations were. So, you know, for me, I was taking three lessons a week in different states at one point. You know, with different teachers you're doing all of that while you're still like for, for me, because we couldn't afford tutors. I had to actually do regular public schooling on top of the Juilliard schooling. So like my workload, you know, was no, I mean, 18, 18, 19 hours a day by the time I was in sixth grade. So like, it's funny because those are the things that have made me great at what I do now. Like when, when we have particularly busy times and people are like, how are you still high energy and how are you still grinding? I'm like, I don't know. It's just what has been wired in me since I was a kid. But, I think that changed any real shot at, at, you know, much of a social life. And that's where like part of the reason I do what I do is when I was really little, my dad's a big Raiders fan and he would his rule was on Sundays. He didn't want to listen to a cat dying in the background while he watched the Raiders. So he would go get a dozen donuts. We'd sit down together. We eat a dozen donuts and we watch the Raiders game. So Sunday became my like reprise from all things. And, and football became sort of my social aspect. Like I, I poured myself into these games and these athletes that I had absolutely no control over because that fed some level of like release for me. So it's funny that all of these things that, you know, in some ways made life difficult also helped me. And the other thing I'll say too, when it comes to the social aspect is when you're constantly on edge with your skills, like for anyone that doesn't know, in the classical world, you may come in one day and you're the concertmaster, you're the first chair in an orchestra, and you'll come in one day and there's a sign up that says, you know, uh, seat auditions. And when I was eight years old, in uh, I was in Las Vegas at the time before I got into Juilliard, I was playing in a college-age orchestra. So I was the only kid that wasn't in college for this orchestra that went all over the country and, and won awards. And I was the concertmaster, I had the first chair. But you would walk in and it would say seat auditions, and if you blew that audition you were reseated wherever you were reseated. So a whole year's worth of work gone from one bad audition that you didn't even know was coming, a blind audition. It, it taught me that you always have to be your best, but also as orchestras change and as people change and as tour buses change it later in life, you realize you're constantly, you have to be able to evolve to the people that are around you. Like you have to become somewhat conversational because you might have a different stand partner this week than you had last week. You might be on a different tour bus next week than you are the week before. And like, all of that stuff, the, the ability to read the room and sort of figure out how to fit in is something you learn, even not in a social way, you learn in a business way, but it really actually impacted my life in business to be able to walk into any show on ESPN and say, okay, like, who are my co-hosts? Great. Like, how can I make sure my co-hosts are great today?
2: Because that's what you do in music constantly. Going back to Juilliard, because I just feel like I know the name, but I don't know anything else about it. You know, you just know the prestige, right? You know, <laughs> I'll, t- oh, I'll, I'll tell Juilliard. you this,
0: like, the The movie Whiplash, for anybody that's ever seen the movie Whiplash, is incredibly accurate. And I had a I had one teacher, uh, Peter Malevsky, and Mr. Malevsky spoke very uh, terrible English. And he had things on his desk. And if you made the same mistake twice, he would grab whatever was on his desk and he would throw it at you. So oh, you know you'd okay. have like a snow globe come flying at your head. Like and, and that's like that's real. When I was before I got to Juilliard, I had a teacher in Vegas. Uh, That had retired from the Royal Conservatory of Music uh, in London over to Las Vegas, renowned teacher at the time, and he had a prosthetic leg. And so if I played poorly, he would get really angry and he would just take his leg off and, you know, threaten to hit me with it,
1: which is funny
0: now. But when you're like eight, (laughs) you're like, Oh my God. And you're playing an instrument where a centimeter is the difference between right and wrong, you know, and where you, you may have been asked to memorize 4,000 little notes on a page and like in that week. So like the, the intensity of it is absolutely real. Like everything whiplash is, is sort of a character to a lot of people. It isn't for me, like I've never made it through the entire movie because it is an uncomfortable reminder of how intense a lot of that was. But again, like when you've lived through that, like then, you know, uh, I, I'll never forget being on OTL and outside the lines on ESPN. And like, it's legit. Like I'm wearing a tie, you know, I got a suit jacket on, they're giving me a big shot. And I look over at one camera and they're like, we lost all comms. The interview dead. So I spin my chair to the other camera and they're like, we just lost more comms. We have nothing we can offer you. So I just looked at the camera. And I'm like, all right, y'all, it's live TV and nothing's working. So we're going to go to break and see what happens. And when we came out of it, they were like, Oh my God! How did you figure that out? And it's like, well, you know, I, those you you spend enough of your years in a pressure cooker, and pressure just doesn't bother you.
1: Your teacher is like the musical Bobby Knight, throwing yep. things. Yeah, at you guys. Yep. yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. That's um, why I
0: laugh when when fans are like, "You don't understand a locker room," and I'm like, "You don't understand an orchestra room either, <laughs> bud." So, well, that's I actually wanted to
2: ask you about that because you obviously deal with a lot of athletes. You know a lot of athletes. You interview a lot of athletes, but you also know a lot of famous musicians and whether they're singers or in a band or whatever, which lifestyle do you think is more difficult?
0: So I think the sacrifice that it takes to make it to the absolute highest level in music is actually bigger than the sacrifice it takes to make it to the highest level in sports. No offense to to anybody that does it. But I also think one difference is once you're there, you once you hit cruise control and music, you can hit cru- cruise control. Like I cannot play a violin for six months. And if I pick it up and I spend a couple of weeks really working on it, I can get most of my fingers back. I can go out and play. Like, that's not a big deal. You can't do that in sports. Right. Or even in, in, in what we do, like you have to with sports media, you have to consistently continue to listen and, and learn and watch and consume. Like, so there's more homework, like the work never ends on that side. I do think on the music side, you reach a spot where you are just general maintenance and you can, you can sort of pull back, but the sacrifice it takes to get there, like, You know, you can look around the landscape right now, country music, for example, like I was a fiddle player and everybody thinks country and fiddle players. I was and I think still would be the only fiddle player that's ever been a band leader in modern country music. Like I was the only music director doing it. Like you start thinking about how many violinists there are, how many fiddle players there are, and you're going to get into the tens of thousands. And then you've got maybe six guys touring out of Nashville like the numbers of trying to make it are actually much tougher in music so I think it takes more, it takes more to get there and you have to give up more music is the hours it takes it takes more to get there in music but it takes more to stay there in sports.
1: You've led the most interesting life. I could talk to you for hours. (laughs) I'm so curious about all of these things that you've done, but I want to touch on your time on tour because I think a lot of people, they look at music and they look at the industry and the tour life from the outside. And we have this image in our head that you're standing on a stage and you're playing in front of all of these people who are singing your songs and then you're partying into the wee hours and it's just this continuous cycle. But what is the one thing about tour that people don't understand?
0: There's more protein powder on most tour buses than alcohol. And like, that's wow, like,
1: wow, really?
0: <laughs> and, and look, I don't think I'm violating any great trust here, but I'll tell you that more often than not, when you see Blake Shelton on a stage with the red solo cup, there's not, if there's any liquor in it, there's very little liquor in it. Like, so you, you party like a maniac when you first get out on the road, cause you can't believe you're on a tour bus. And then inevitably what happens is you realize about 200 straight days into it that you can't function, you're playing terribly, and you can't even handle the next meet and greet that you have to do. So like it normalizes. And then you realize like I had an awakening with one of the first acts I played with a guy named Phil Vassar. And Phil, in the late 90s, early 2000s, had so much success. And when I started touring with him, it's like mid 2000s. And he was at that spot where like he he sort of had his run. He was doing really well, but he wasn't rising the same way and phil looked at everything as such a business and such a performance like the need to stay in shape and all of these things and i was looking around thinking like what are you worried about let's have a good time and and he really explained he's like you know at some point it will sink in this is your job now and just like you can't go to walmart every day drunk or any days you can't you know you can't do this and do it at the level you want to do it if you live a certain way and you know, that's true, particularly in country, I can't say in pop, you know, they tour a lot less in pop. They can get a lot of crazier, but for, for us, like, you know, baseball, hockey, marathon sports are very similar to country music touring. And so you realize quickly that if you want to be able to play well in November and in March, you got to take care of yourself. So most, most buses are a lot less than you think. Yeah, it, it really is. <laughs> a lot less partying than anybody thinks. And like a lot less sightseeing, like, you you become very routine oriented like when you're on a tour like a huge tour like brad paisley or you know rascal flats keith urban you you wake up in the morning and you're at the the venue you're going to be in but there's only one like runner that will take people around for the day and they really have set runs they have to make so you spend most of your day either at the hotel if you're going to shower or at the venue if they have showers so like you don't really there's not a big difference when you're playing between playing paducah or playing vegas because you're really underneath an arena when you're on big tours most of the day so it's not as like you see the world but you don't really see the world what's your favorite venue to play um madison square garden when i was little like i said because we didn't have much i would uh, my parents would give me lunch money for the week and i just wouldn't eat and i'd keep it and at the after my lessons on friday or saturdays if i could get out of rehearsals I go down to the garden and this is like the garden in the early mid nineties, not the safe garden um, yeah. with whatever I had in my pocket, my violin. I just be like, Hey, I got $4. What can you sell me? So after the puck, after the tip off, either one, um, they, I would just buy seats. So when we played the garden, that was particularly emotional for me. Cause I was like, Oh, I've sat there and there and there and there. Those are the moments like, you know, first time I played Meriwether Post Pavilion in, in DC. Most people don't care about that, but I saw Hootie and the Blowfish there. So like to look at the seat you sat in is like, oh, this is. And I was on a tour that had Darius Rucker on it. So it's like like these weird those those weird um, come together moments. I think those stand out as like big ones. But uh, the the craziest show um, was at uh, Hyde Park in England, and it was only crazy because we were on this massive festival. And we covered Fat Bottom Girls as one of the songs we did a bunch. Nice. And I had a fiddle solo at the end. So I ran out to the end of the, the ego ramp, uh, catwalk, whatever you want to call it. We always called it the ego ramp because you got to get out there and feel like you're a star. So I go out <laughs> to the end of the ego ramp and I was playing the solo to Fat Bottom Girls. And I looked out and there were like one hundred and ten thousand people there. And they certainly weren't there just for this band. They were there for a festival. But when you look out and think, man, I never would have imagined that one hundred and ten thousand people in England would give a damn about the music I had to make like that yeah. was very surreal.
1: A lot of people love country music because it's very relatable. I know when I listen to the country, it feels like, oh, I'm just a Midwestern girl. We're talking about beer and hanging out with our friends and our dogs and love and all of these things. And I think part of that is country musicians feel very relatable. They feel more relatable than a Beyonce or, so, or a J-Lo, someone that I'll never be. I think I look at a lot of country artists and I think that looks like a good hang. We could sit around a bonfire and have a few pops together. So tell me who the best hang in country music is.
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, so, wow. Okay. Depends on what kind of hang you want. I think Luke, Brian, and the guys probably have the most, fun, like, the most energetic fun. Like, there, there's always going to be, like, cornhole outside the bus, and it doesn't matter if it's before the show or after the show. Somebody's out there playing, like, just having a good time. Like, those guys are just loving life on the road. So that makes them a really, really fun hang. I, I think – you know, Joe Don, uh, from flats, like he's such a, um, he's such a like sports fan that he's just a fun watch. Like he's, he's a fun guy to sit on the bus and watch uh, college football with, as opposed to Brad, who's like super intense on it. Um, but I think the nicest, the nicest human on the road might be Keith Urban. Like mm-hmm. I'll never forget the first show we played with Keith and he walked up on my riser and I'm setting up all these instruments and he's like, Hey man, I'm Keith. Can I help you with anything? And I'm like, uh, your your face is right here, and it's in a big poster. I think I got you. No, he uh, but he, But but yeah. that was a uh, yeah, that was, and I didn't see him after that tour for months. And we were backstage at the country or the uh, the ACMs, the Academy of Country Music Awards in Vegas, and he was backstage with Nicole, and uh, a few of the band guys were backstage with our wives. And Keith walked up with Nicole, and he's like, Nicole, meet these guys, and like he remembered each of our names and introduced our wives, and it was just like a really cool like. A give a damn moment. And, and, you know, I think you're right. Like country artists are more relatable. It takes them longer to make it. They make way less money, honestly. And they have to work 10 times harder. They have to do 10 times as many shows. And they understand that like this is a long journey. And when you know it's a long journey, you just I think your feet stay grounded better than they do like when you have overnight success.
2: That's a great segue Fitz, because Michelle and I were talking about this before we had you and I like music. I've liked music my entire life, but I was never really into country growing up. Like when I was in my teens, even into college or whatever. And for whatever reason, I found country music later in life. I mean, I say late, I mean, I'm in my you know early thirties, but last couple of years, I've just gotten more into country and not the party country, not the Florida Georgia new line, country, like that kind of new thing. Country. But, you know, my favorite albums of the last couple of years are not only country <laughs> albums, but they're female country albums. Like I love the, K- the Casey Musgraves album, Golden Hour, uh, Maren Morris, Man. I obviously love. I went to a Chris Stapleton concert a couple of years ago with my wife um, at Woodstock, and it was one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my life. I'm into Sturgill. And it's weird because- I don't know why it took me so long to get into country music, but there is like a stigma, especially because you know I was from Connecticut. Although there is like a pretty big country faction of fans in the Northeast, it would it would kind of surprise you. But I've always been interested in what kinds of music music people listen to, right? You know, I know what I like, you know, and and I feel like I have a pretty eclectic view. What are the acts that you listen to now, or like the last five years? What are some of your favorite albums? Are they all country? Is it more like no. are you into rap? What is no, this so- listen to? Who is a highly trained musician?
0: You know, understanding like I grew up a classical music kid and my um, my mom was super into the Eagles. My dad was into like doo So like those were the things that I was exposed to as a kid. My first concert was Bon Jovi. Uh, so like that, that nice. era of, of hair metal, like uh, that was a, a big transformation for me. And um, when I first like when I first I was in Chicago for a few months studying with a, a violin professor there, and my roommate was a, at the time, world renowned trumpet player. And he came in one day and he quite literally threw away every CD I owned. And he left two CDs on my desk and he said, The rest of the music you listen to is trash. You've got to listen to these. And it yeah. was Stevie Wonder Songs of the K Life and Aretha Franklin Live at the Fillmore. And mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. and he was right. His whole point was like, You got to learn to feel the groove a different way. And so, like, all of these things along the way, like, I, I went to high school in uh, PG County in Maryland. So, you know, at, at that point, uh, I went to a high school where when uh, Eazy E died, they hung banners off of the, the side of the high school. Like they, all they listened to was urban music. So like for me, boys to men in the mid nineties was a huge influence. Cause I love anything with vocals on it. So like all that to say, like I've never really pinned myself into any one genre that I like. I listen to new music Friday on Spotify every week because I want to make sure that I stay as relevant as possible. But like, most of what I listen to is any singer songwriter that feels like his life has gone to just complete shit. That's most of the time, like, like James Arthur sort of guys, like I'm, I'm into anything that that has tremendous emotion. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I love to listen to. So uh-huh. you
1: must love Frank Ocean then. Oh, like me. uh, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I, 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 I want guys that, or girls that, um, that make you feel like the, yes. the music makes you feel and their vocal makes you feel like that's why you know years ago and when i first started playing fiddle uh, for for bands in general i i at that point was a studio musician doing classical work i took like 70s rock records and looked at guitar solos and said okay like how did they figure out Hotel california How do I play that on a fiddle? Like what made this solo cool? What makes that, that riff cool? That's how I approached it. So everything for me had a real rock orientation, but over the years, I think for me, like British singer songwriters, uh, they just have so much like pull and power to what they're singing. It feels like they feel it. And so that's the stuff that draws me in all the time. Give me at least one song that's kind of recent fit Spotify playlist. Give me something. Oh, one song. That's that's somewhat new hold on hold on i'm gonna i'm, I'm putting you guys on hold now yeah, i'm just putting look, on my spotify take, take like this time. this is what's gonna happen um yeah so again in uh james arthur is new like he has a new single out uh rehab i love that that is a uh, spectacular word uh need to breathe is probably my favorite band uh out right mm-hmm. now and they just put out a new record live from the woods too this week uh which uh sorry guys I haven't listened to yet but the first one's amazing <laughs> um so i'm a big fan of that uh, on the countryside brothers osborne chris stapleton are on my playlist yeah. right now um and unapologetically i am a massive uh massive massive pop fan so bruno mars is always on my mm-hmm. playlist as is the new avril lavigne the new avril lavigne is pretty good so didn't know she had yeah. new music
1: yeah me either
0: yeah. wow I, i'm but they used in the in the band kimberly used to always call me a pop tart and she meant <laughs> it as a compliment but like if it's popular right now like I'm I'm I love it like I am definitely a top 40 like when Lizzo hit Lizzo hit and it didn't matter to me that I didn't know who Lizzo was up until that point it consumed me for like a month and then you're like oh I love this now like that that's definitely me.
2: Fitz, I'm telling you, there's no shame there. I was just telling Michelle how I'm embarrassed that I didn't
0: realize how great the Dua Lipa album was. Oh, love Dua oh, Lipa. That, that record, uh, uh, I have been lucky enough to be a Grammy voter in my life. And that that record for me, like absolutely deserved the Grammy. Yeah, uh, a thousand awesome. percent to me. Like that record front to back. Oh, I mean, that's a road trip record if mm-hmm. ever I've heard one.
1: Yes, it is. Okay. Pop chart. Well, thank you for indulging our music questions for you. We of course want to ask you about sports. We were hoping to tape with you last week, but you have so many things going on, including some stuff for the NFL draft that's happening next week. So please fill us in on what you've been up to.
0: Yeah. So I went to LA last week and uh, for anyone that watched the draft in Nashville, I did vignettes with different country stars uh, that they played throughout the draft, like little 30 second, 45 second things. Um, Really cool moment for me to reconnect with some people unfortunate as you guys understand well that some of the best stuff never made it to air like we had a great conversation with Darius Rucker about the limitations that he felt from radio being a black man trying to make country music like stuff like that but. We also got a ton of stuff that that people saw from the Keith Urban's of the world where we brought that back this year because the draft is next door to the rock and roll hall of fame. So I had the chance to sit down with Joe Elliott at Def Leppard, Richie Sambora, who's like my personal, you know, uh, like my, my personal music hero. So Richie Sambora and I got to hang out and like Shaka Khan, earth, wind and fire, uh, Joan Jett, like all these different acts to basically talk about the process of becoming a hall of famer. Like the tie-in is that, you, you overnight, your dreams come true and you accomplish what you've worked your whole life for and you suddenly have wealth and fame and fortune. You have all of these things coming together. How do you navigate those waters? And even though they may not be athletes, that, that's an interesting conversation to me from Hall of Famers. So th- you'll see those throughout the draft on ESPN and ABC, both uh, throughout all three days of the network. Plus, shameless plug, uh, I'll be on the digital shows uh, the first two days of the draft and then simulcast radio and digital on the third day of the draft hosting. So all over the place on the draft content.
2: Raiders, what do they need in the draft? Really quick before we get you out. What do you want to see? Who do you want to see them? Pick? The best
0: offensive player available. The best, like I've seen all these Parsons keeps going, you know, to to the mocks. Yeah. yeah. If Parsons slides to the Raiders, then I'm going to do naked cartwheels in the street <laughs> and throw a parade. Like he's way too good to fall that far. I will say that the Raiders need all the defensive help. They can get some offensive line help. What every fan can be excited about is that we are so stupidly quarterback obsessed in this draft that we're going to end up taking so many kids that never would usually be a top five pick, which means the Kyle Pitts of the world, this uh, Panay Sewell of the world, the offensive lineman out of Oregon that's an actual, absolute beast. I mean, you can go up and down the, the road. There are going to be picks available at 12, 13 this year that are usually top five picks mm-hmm. because everybody wants to reach for Trey Lance. So, you know, hey, good on them. Like, hopefully it works. But for all the rest of us, we can sit back and say, man, you, you can feast in the early teens. And that's not usually the case.
1: Jason, you are the best. We could have talked to you for three hours, but we want to be respectful of your time. Everyone needs to follow you on Twitter at Jason Fitz because you're going to be posting all the things you're doing with the draft. And of course, listen to his ESPN radio show, Spanning Fitz, from 7 to 9 Eastern. We're going to have you to do this again. Best. I have so many I more questions I for you. We're going to have to definitely do this again.
0: I'm all in for it. I really appreciate you guys letting me come on. Thanks,
1: Fitz. Steve, I meant it. I could have talked to Jason Fitz for three, four hours. What an interesting guy. What an interesting life he's led.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated by people who are elite at what they do. And then There's so few of those people. And then the people that leave that and say, hey, I'm really good at this. I'm one of the best in the world at it, but I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something different. I mean, it just takes balls. It just does. And that's why I've always respected him. And he's, I mean, on top of him, he's just a great dude. He's one of the guys that just to have a beer with and shoot the shit and talk about life with, he's one of the best. Like I would say, he's up there. Will Kane's up there. But just a fascinating background. And one of the things I wanted to ask him that, but we didn't get to, so we'll have him on again, is I've struggled and he talked about musicians make their best music when there's something wrong, right? In their life, whether like Hozier's album, when he was recovering heroin addict, you can't replicate that, right? Mm-mm. And Hozier made this great album, but he can never make that album again because he's not a heroin addict anymore. You know what I mean? That's why the Taylor right. Swift stuff, and we didn't get to ask him about Taylor Swift, but- She's been able to make so many songs about heartbreak that she gets criticized because of that, but it's inspiration for writing songs. I just think writing music in general is freaking impossible.
1: Beyonce, Lemonade. I mean, how many times is your husband going to cheat on you and then you get in a fight in the elevator at the Standard Hotel? Probably not that many.
2: So anyway, long story short of, we both love music. And he has a unique look into that field of stuff that we don't necessarily know about. So it was exciting to talk to him for sure.
1: It's interesting because a lot of times, as you were mentioning, pain causes the art, right? Mm -hmm. Like the art blossoms from pain, which kind of sucks. Like you have to go through something. awful and traumatic or something amazing and love it's a big time feelings deal
2: i remember listening to certain albums they were probably like john mayer albums and i'd be like oh <laughs> i'm so upset like i wish i had my heart broken right now because i wish i could relate to these songs more i remember thinking that growing up how dumb is that it's so that's weird. that's
1: the dumbest thing i've ever but heard.
2: like i wanted to feel what this album felt like or what this so- or the emotion in this song that i'm listening to i'm like i couldn't relate to it but i realized how emotional it was and i wanted to have a connection to it so i remember yeah my teens i'd be like we don't have to get into my like, dating dating history in high school but um, I remember thinking that in the back of my mind because you could tell when someone is going through real shit, that's when they make their best art.
1: Yeah, but I can consume that and also not have to go through some real yeah, shit. Yeah, I, I don't would know. I didn't, show, okay? <laughs> I didn't have it all figured out,
2: Michelle, wow, okay? I didn't have it all figured out.
1: Wow, am glad Steve, that's one of the more surprising things you've ever said.
2: I'll surprise you. Young Steve would surprise some people, I'm telling you. I always yeah. say it's a good thing Maddie didn't know me when I was young. It's a good thing you didn't know me when I was young. I was a little, just a little bit of a different cat. But getting back into the music stuff, I have struggled. I don't think you are this way, maybe a little bit, but not as much as me. I've struggled to find music that I love and attach myself to as much as I did when I was in my teens or even early 20s out of college. The last like five to 10 years, I've always considered myself a big music guy, but I've just struggled to find new artists and acts that I really latch onto. I don't know. Is that just part of getting old?
1: No. You know what I think it is, is I think it's with a lot of other things in society that everything is on demand and everything is oversaturated. Okay, so I watched the blockbuster documentary mm-hmm. over the weekend. Was it Have good? you seen that on Netflix?
2: No, was it good? It was. The irony, by the way, of of Netflix making a blockbuster documentary. I know,
1: I know the whole thing. But when we were growing up, watching a movie was an event. Mm-hmm. You would go to the movie theater. It was an event. There was only x amount of movies out. They were only out out for this amount of time. If you wanted to see it, you had to plan around it. From- Friday night, going to Blockbuster, the smell of the Blockbuster, searching for the movie, landing on one, hoping they had it in stock, getting the pizza, going home, watching the movie. It was an event. Now we have a buffet of content options. We're speaking of burnout, we're burnt out on content. We have everything we could ever want. So, movies are not an event. The same way music is not an event when NSYNC or whoever you loved came out with a new song, you would have to wait to hear it on the radio. You would wait for the album to drop. And now we have new music Fridays on Spotify. We're getting new Mm -hmm. tunes all the time. So I just feel like everything is oversaturated anymore and it's not as special as it used to be. That's why, I mean, I know I talk about Frank Ocean a lot and you talk about John Mayer, but those are artists that we have an emotional connection to that makes us feel things and that's rare. But there are the Dua Lipas of the world that just put out. Bops. Well, it's just a
2: bop. There's just bop after bop. I love, yeah. I
1: love consistent bops. But that kind of
2: music, I'm always. You're gonna not like going to connect kind of to
1: it. You're no, it just. Like, I put it on the oh, car. I felt levitating. My God, I felt levitating in my soul. Yep. You're never going to feel that. But yes, yeah, slow dancing in a burning room—that's going to stick with you. The first time that I heard "Siegfried" by Frank Ocean, that sticks with you. You know mm-hmm. things like that.
2: Yeah, and it's a good point you bring up about movies too. I kind of feel like collectively, the movies and the television shows now are so good that back in the day, you would watch a movie and it would be a bad movie. and be like, yeah, that was okay. All yeah. right, we rented it at Blockbuster yeah. because you there was, there was so much more investment into it. Yeah. And now I get so in my head about what I'm going to pick on Netflix or what I'm, what movie I'm going to watch. And I'm, I'm in the IMDb looking up, reading reviews because I'm like, I, I don't want to waste two hours of my time. God forbid I watch a bad movie. It would totally derail my day. I'm so in my head on this stuff now And there's never been more great content than ever, but you're right. It's brain overload. You can't process how much good shit is out there musically too. But I think some of it is just me getting all this. At some point in life, I kind of feel like you become an old person and you just, you listen to all the music from the past. You don't really move forward. And I'm afraid that I've gotten to that point and I try Um, actively not to so are you but- kidding
1: we're there kid we're there you know I get dms we get messages to our website there's a demographic of og shelley's that are our age and they only like the pod because of the nostalgia factor I know. because we talk about <laughs> things that we used to like and we're seriously the get off my lawn people now I'm like I'm not getting on uh, tiktok man, there's too much content well, I'm on tiktok there. now so
2: don't worry about I know,
1: it I know <laughs> yeah, I know but happy. I'm clearly becoming an old woman but you're right though by the way imagine when we were kids you would rent a movie that likely sucks that's likely trash and you'd watch it with your friends while you're drinking Surge and eating Papa John's. And you're like, you know what, Paul Blart, not bad.
2: I remember I was, (laughs) I went went to the movies in middle school to watch on a date to watch a movie called Darkness Falls, which was one of the worst movies probably ever made. It was a horror movie. Absolutely terrible. I, well, I guess my parents probably gave me money at that point, but I went there and that was my entertainment for the night. And now I'm sitting here looking at IMDb going "Mm, 6.9. I'm not sure that's good enough for me. It's insane how we've just changed. It just, I don't know, blows my mind.
1: And in such a short period of time, so many things have changed in such a short period of time. It's not like yeah. a decade of evolution. It's like, well, maybe it is. And we're just old as hell. I don't know. Anyway. Okay. Let's wrap this up. This was great. Thank you to Jason Fitz again for giving us the time. And we'll definitely have to have him on again, because as you mentioned, we didn't even ask him any Taylor Swift questions. That I we had, And he'll obviously be a great resource there, but we're going to get him on again soon, but please follow him at Jason Fitz and be sure to check out the draft stuff he talked about. I cannot wait to see the music hall of fame, NFL crossover stuff. It's going to be out standing thank you to everyone for listening thank you saruti steve and i will be back in action next week but until then f the super league
2: we're all pop tarts thanks for listening to small talk subscribe on apple
0: podcasts or the podcast one app